three of them will be Psalm 90, uh, Matthew 24, and 2 Peter chapter 3, if you'd like to get a place. We will be turning to those places and spending some time uh, at least in two of them, Matthew and Psalm. Uh, but if you'd like to get ahead, you can do that as well. <clears throat> this morning, three, three, ver- three verses with uh, two of them having the same saying, one of them almost similar to the other two, um, a little variation. Matthew chapter 22, uh, please give your attention. This is the reading of, uh, this is uh, the word of the Lord. His word is faithful and true. Verse 7, behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 12, behold, I am coming quickly. And verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, that you would be with us now as we consider the, the blessed proclamation and promise that you will return quickly. Give us, Lord, minds that understand. Give us hearts, Lord, that believe. Give us hands and feet that are busy in obedience, Lord. And Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask these things in Christ and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome you uh, this Lord's Day Sabbath. We continue our worship through the Apocalypse of John. Uh, we have just read three similar verses. Just before the canon of Scripture comes to a close, God breathes through the Apostle Prophet John and guides his pen to write three times the promise and declaration, I am coming quickly. The Lord Jesus promises that he shall not only return, but that his return shall be swift. The promise is also a declaration. He is declaring as the herald of heralds that he shall return and make all things new. The first two times that our Lord proclaims the promise of his return It is prefaced with the word behold. It is, behold, is an imperative, meaning that what he is about to say is crucial. Behold is a call to the fact that that what he is about to say is of the utmost of importance. Behold is a call then to give our attention because this declaration of Christ's return is most assuredly true. In verse 20, that's the point he gets to. Our Lord does not give the imperative, behold, but rather gives the surety or the certainty of his promise. He says, um, prefacing, I will come quickly, he says, yes. Instead of saying, behold, this time, he says, yes. In the Gospels, the Lord would preface the certainty or reliability of his statements by saying, as you know, verily, verily, or truly, truly. It is to say that what he is about to say is absolutely true and trustworthy. 
It is what John has been led to say about what has been revealed to him all throughout this book, that God's word is faithful and true. Christ says in verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. It is though it is as though the Lord is saying one last time in a way that will stand until it comes to pass. Verily, verily, one last time. Before the book closes, one last time, truly, truly. You can take this to the bank. You can invest your entire life in this. The Lord says, I am coming quickly. Well, dear ones, since last week, have you been praying for Christ to return? Has that been involved in some shape or form in your prayers? Come, Lord Jesus, come. I pray that your prayers have ended more frequently with with that ending. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I pray that it's so. Let me ask you a question. Hasn't the prayer that, that you and I have been encouraged to pray more frequently, come, Lord Jesus, hasn't that prayer been prayed by the saints of God ever since Christ rose from the dead? L- let me let you know where we're going. Haven't the disciples prayed that? The apostles, didn't they also? They, disciples, apostles, didn't they pray that? Come, Lord Jesus. The prophets prayed this. The church fathers prayed this. The early church prayed this. The saints down through the, cent- down through the centuries have prayed. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Guys, it's been over 2,000 years since Christ rose from the dead. It's uh, been about 2,000 years since John penned these words inspired by the Spirit that encourages the church with the proclamation, I am coming quickly. It's been a long time. Christ proclaimed that he would return. And, And not just return, but that he would return quickly. And yet, here we are, 2,000, over 2,000 years later. Not exactly quick, is it? 2,000 years and Christ has not yet returned. Are we believing a lie? Over 2,000 years and Christ still hasn't returned. Are we waiting in vain, Bob Marley? Are we waiting in vain? I wonder, saints, if you've ever asked yourself, what's taking so long? You would not be out of step with the saints who cried out in Revelation chapter 6 from under the altar. How long, O Lord? Two thousand Over 2,000 years ago, saints under the altar are crying out, how long? You might be sitting here this morning asking yourselves as well, and you would not be wrong. How long? And at the same time, fervently praying in faith and hope and love that that Christ would come quickly, just like he said. But saints, so much time has passed. So much time has passed. I I would dare to say that every generation has said what many of you have probably said in, in, in your time. I think the Lord is coming in my lifetime. I know people who have passed away who have said to me, I think the Lord is coming in my lifetime. Well, they're, they're gone. We're, st- we're still here waiting. The world is not getting any better, is it? 
the condition of man is not getting any better. Wars seem to be breaking out in every nation, don't they? Division seems to be at an all-time high. Nowadays, if you believe in a certain um, political belief, you're, you're not just, oh, that's what you believe. N now you are demonized. The diseases and viruses seem to be mutating at alarming rates. Uh, immorality is peddled as the norm, while righteousness is being scoffed at as belonging to an ancient past. All of this, and I don't desire to, to count all of the wickedness in the world... But it might cause the righteous to cry out, along with the saints in Revelation chapter 6, How long, O Lord? Or even more bluntly, Lord, what's taking you so long? Or, what are you waiting for? Is God, is God waiting the way we wait? Is there a clock that God is watching as a kind of countdown? Uh, similar to what we experience uh, New Year's Eve, uh, you know, waiting for the ball to drop. Is, is, is that what God is doing? Waiting for the time, looking at the clock for Christ to return? Okay, now go. Is God experiencing time in such a way that he's waiting for the ball to drop? We're here on this side of creation, experiencing life and the challenges of a fallen world, while at the same time calling out to God that, that Christ would return and return quickly just like he said he would. Is God on his side of heaven also experiencing time? Is he experiencing time along with us? Waiting for the hour to pass before the divine persons finally push the red button and send Christ to the earth. What is God's relationship to time? Does Christ know the time of his return? And what must we do until that time? With God's help, we shall consider two points, just two, one very long one, based on these questions with the proclamation of this. The Lord has promised that he will return quickly. And that is a good dwelling place to be. Believing in that is a good dwelling place to be. If you're looking for a title, God's promises... A good dwelling place. God's promise, a good dwelling place. <clears throat> Number one, God's relationship to time. We're going to be a little um, heady this morning, but but may God grant, grant us grace to go higher than to uh, come down low again. Uh, God's relationship to time. Revelation chapter 22. Behold, I am coming quickly. Saints of God, <clears throat> what is God's relationship to time? Does God experience life in the same manner that you and I are experiencing life? Let's just get this out of the way right off the bat and then build the, the answer. No. There's, if, you want to, if you don't get anything, you'll get this. Does God experience time the way we do? No. You miss everything else, you at least got the answer is no. No, God is not experiencing time as creatures experience time. See that? God experiencing time as creatures experience time? Okay. He's not experiencing, I'm using that word on purpose, experiencing life in the manner that creatures or creation is experiencing life because God, properly speaking, does not experience anything. Why do, what do I mean properly speaking? Experience involves two things, involvement and undergoing change through that involvement. Involvement and undergoing change through that involvement. This is a little simplicity here. 
God is in, is involved in the world, but he's not going undergoing change. God is involved in the world, but he is not going going undergoing change as he's involved. So he's not experiencing, properly speaking, then. Let's color this in with the scriptures. First, a verse that you are very familiar with and one that's often misunderstood, especially in light of the context out of which it comes. Second Peter chapter three and verse eight. You know this verse well, as I begin to say it, you're going to say, oh yeah, I know that verse. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. You've all heard that verse before, haven't you? We will return to that verse at the end of this point because it's relevant for the promise of the Lord's um, proclamation of his return. But for now, many have misunderstood this verse as being a kind of formula for the manner in which God experiences time or how old God is. Many, uh, meaning, some imagine that Peter is explaining how God's life works in relationship to time. Here's, here's what some conclude. That humans experience days in 24-hour periods, but God experiences days in 1,000-year periods. I hope that hearing that explanation makes you go, that doesn't sound right, because it's not right. By this logic, they have argued even that seven days of creation were not actually seven days of literal 24-hour periods, but they were actually 7,000 years or even longer. That is not what Peter is communicating. Let's, Let's say that again. Peter is not saying that God lives one day for us thousand years for him. That's not what Peter is saying. The apostle is actually quoting Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses. If you uh, heard me earlier, uh, we were going to go there. Psalm 90, verse 1. Here's what Moses is getting at. If, if As I'm reading all of Psalms, not all of it, reading Psalm 90, here's Moses' point through this. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Another version says, You are a good dwelling place for all generations. That's the point Moses is making. God, you are a good dwelling place for all generations. Those who find refuge in you will find themselves safe and secure. He says, before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world. He says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is then beginning to explain his point. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. Here he goes. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Moses, through the inspiration of the spirit, declares that before all things were, God was. And that because of the eternality of God, he is a secure or good dwelling place for those who take refuge in him. That's the point. There in verse 4, Moses declares that a thousand years to God is like our yesterday. We're getting somewhere. How many of you remember yesterday? Well, of course, most of us do, right? Some of us might go, I don't remember what I did yesterday. But for many of us, yesterday was just, well, it was just yesterday. Of course I remember yesterday. It just happened. Not much time has passed. Think about 10 years ago. Can you remember 10 years ago today. 
For us, that was a long time ago. It was yesterday, but it was a long yesterday ago. Some of us were not even born 10 years ago, right? For God, a thousand years in our time can pass, and it's nothing to God because God is timeless. He does not experience the movement of time the way creation does. Now let's get to this. What is time? I'm going to quote a pagan. Don't get mad at me. Aristotle says, time is the measurement of motion. It's the measurement of movement. Namely, between beginning A and end B. Well, what is motion? Meaning, what is moving that we would measure its movement and how long, how long it takes for things to get measured from A to B? What, if time is the measurement of movement, what's moving? What's moving? Everything created is moving. Let's just take one example. Our 24 hours of time. What are 24 hours of time measuring? What movement is it measuring? It's not just measuring the movement of the sun going up and the sun going down. That's not exactly what it's measuring. What it's measuring, and we can thank Galileo for this, what it's measuring is the Earth's orbit around the sun. Which takes 24 hours. This, this movement takes 24 hours. From the Earth to get from beginning point A to orbiting, finally orbiting the sun, uh, ending point B, takes 24 hours. Motion is taking place. Movement is taking place. Motion is happening. And as that takes place, things within the Earth are also moving and changing. The sun is there, but it's going day to night, right? Seasons are changing. Landscapes are changing. Uh, motion of the seas are changing. And you are changing. As the days add up, we are aging. But what Moses is getting at is that God is not. God is not moving. And God can't be measured. Therefore, he is a good, safe, Secure place to rest because while all, thi- while all things are changing and moving, God is not changing or moving. God is not experiencing these things because there is no motion in God. He is who he is. Pastor Isaiah will get to that in his sermons. He is who he is without change. God is not experiencing time with creation because God is timeless. Isn't it amazing that when people, especially little ones, when they imagine God, a picture of God, they heretically, may may I say, imagine an old man with white hair and a long beard. Well, that's wrong and it's false because God does not age. God is timeless. There is no measure of motion in God. There is not in God a moving from point A to point B. He is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. We are passing through time. We are experiencing in time a past, a present, and a future. We are in motion. We are ever-changing. We are all growing in all sorts of directions, aren't we? We mature. We advance in knowledge. We advance in understanding. We experience through the motion of time until we come to the end of our physical days. And our souls depart from our bodies. Therefore, man, nor anything that is created, 
is a good and safe dwelling place. Created things are not a safe place to put your hope in because they constantly change with the passing of time. Something that you think you give yourself to that you think is never going to change all of a sudden unexpectedly changes. People will have a job and they think that this job is going to last forever. Then all of a sudden it's 20 years later and now they're changing technology and they're, you're not needed anymore. Things change. Your job is not a good, safe dwelling place. Putting your hope in a person is not a good, safe dwelling place because they change. Even if they still love you, they're going to go away one day. This won't last forever. Things that change, that have motion, are not a safe dwelling place. But God is. Because God doesn't change. God will remain the same. It's not so with God. He does not have a past, he doesn't have a present, and he doesn't have a future in terms of time and experience. He doesn't grow. He doesn't mature. He doesn't advance in knowledge, praise God. He doesn't advance in understanding, praise God. And and, and not experience because God doesn't go through motion again. Herman, Herman Bobbing says, one who says time says motion. One who says time says change. Measurability. Computability, you can add it up, limitation, finite, finiteness, and creatureness. Time says creation. Time is something that is caused to be. Time is not something that God has or that conditions his existence in any way. He does not move, nor is he moved. He does not change. He cannot be measured. He cannot be computed. You can't add up the days of God. Because he doesn't have any days. He has no limits. He's infinite. He's not caused, but he is the ultimate cause of all things. Therefore, when Moses and Peter say that a thousand years can pass and it is like a day for God, they're not saying that we live in a kind of human way and God lives in a kind of divine way. He's not, they're not saying that. Rather, they're saying that God exists in a limitless instant which indivisibly embraces the whole succession of time that he has caused and willed to be. He's timeless. James Dolezal, God takes all that is involved in creation and takes it up, not successively like us, but in an, but in an indivisible instant, all at once. God is not standing and looking at a clock, counting down to the moment when God, when Christ will return. God is not experiencing life as we know it with us moment by moment as creation or his image bearers do. God does not exist on any timeline, saints. He's beyond time altogether. God does not exist at any time because God exists in a boundless, limitless, unquantifiable eternity. And, and even eternity may sound like a weird word because it sounds like something quantifiable, something that, that can be added. But what is what it is simply denoting is a view of time that is actually aiming toward the idea of timelessness. Eternity is aiming toward timelessness, not time. God sets the time. Time does not set God. One author said, God's relation, so we're thinking about, well, how is then God involved in our lives? Well, I love this, watch this. One author said, God's relation to each event is a temporal sequence 
uh, in a temporal sequence is the same as his relation to any other event. Watch this. God does not experience the first century before he experiences, technically untechnically speaking, the 21st century. He's not going through, oh, here's the first century. Oh, now I'm going along with you all to the 21st century. It doesn't happen that way. Both of these centuries are experienced, not properly speaking, by God in a timeless now. Here's the example. So while it is true that a saint in the first century prayed for God to give wisdom, and the prayer was answered in the first century, God's response did not occur in the first century. God in his eternality and timelessness heard and answered that prayer. He did not hear and then answer, but heard and answered in one timeless moment. All things at once. In fact, our prayers for Christ to return here in the 21st century were heard in the same timeless moment that the prayers of the first century from Christ were prayed. Meaning that when they were prayed in the first century, God doesn't hear them then. And then as we're praying them now, God is also hearing them now. He's hearing them all at one time. In one timeless moment, God hears and knows all things. Augustine says, your, your years do not come and go. Your today does not give way for tomorrow. We don't understand this, but we must confess it. It's not the way we live, but God is not like us. Uh, we, we deny any kind of mutualism between us and God. God is simple. The whole simultaneous possession of God, of boundless life, is in the life of God's eternity. God's life is not lived bit by bit like yours and mine. Things are not flowing into his possession and then out of his possession like they are yours and mine. He does not have a history like you and me. Earlier I said that, right? He does not have a past, a present, and a future. And that may be hard for some because don't the scriptures say that he is the one who is, who was, who is, and who is to come? Doesn't that sound like a past, present, and future? But that statement is not about the existence of God. Rather, it's about God governing all of creation from beginning to end. God doesn't have a life like our life. God is life. It is not something that he is experiencing and passing through. He is the very life by which he lives and gives to all creatures. Our lives are lived between before and afters. God has every moment all at once. God embraces past, present, and future, but nothing in him can be past, present, and future. His life remains always the same. And it is immutable. He is immutable. So, what is the point of timelessness that Moses is giving us then? The point is this, because God is timeless, Lord, you are our good dwelling place and for all generations you are. Because God doesn't change, he's a good place to put yourself into. The promise of, therefore, the promise of the return of Christ is a comfort for all of those who trust in him, even though it's been a long time. The point is that in spite of the passage of time, God is a good dwelling place for those who take shelter in him. He won't let you down. He's not moved by time. We're moved by time. He's not in motion. He's not experiencing alterations within his being. He's not looking at the world 
as we are presently experiencing and going, gosh, I, I think I'm running out of time. I better hurry up. God is not bound by time the way we are. Amen. God's revelation of, of himself, it undergoes change. Not that he changes, but the manifestation of himself, the disclosure of himself to us, it does change. The way that he reveals himself to us in time, it does undergo change. But the temptation for us is to go, well, since God's revelation to us undergoes change, that means then that God himself must undergo change. Not true. No, God is eternal. God is timeless. God is immutable. And it is precisely because of these perfections that God is a good dwelling place. He does not change. Now, what is the context, this is important, of what Moses is saying? Why is Moses saying this thousand years and day yesterday? Why, Why is he saying that? Because believe it or not, the context of Psalm 90 is the exact same context of 2 Peter chapter 3. Watch this. After saying a, a number of things, Moses says in verse 13 of Psalm 90, here's what, he, here's what he requests. Return, O Lord. And he says, how long will it be? He begins Psalm 90 by saying, Lord, you are a safe dwelling place. You give man life. He will then go on to say, Teach us to number our days because we won't be here forever. But then he goes, Lord, how long is it going to take you to come? How long will it be? Return. He, he would be saying the, the prayer that we're praying. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And then he goes, how long is it going to be? Moses in a, in a different epoch, in a different age, calling out with the same call that you and I in this epoch are calling out with. Come, Lord Jesus, come. He, along with those who believed in God, believed, believed that God was going to send a deliverer. They were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. We're on this side, again, waiting for the arrival of Messiah. Moses is on the other side of the age saying, send Messiah. Messiah eventually comes. Now we're on this side of the age saying, send Messiah. Send the deliverer. He's fervently praying that God would make good on his promise. But here's the encouraging thing. But until then, Moses is saying, even if Moses does not see the return of the Lord, Moses knows that God is a good dwelling place because he doesn't change. Come, Lord, how long is it going to take? And even if I don't see it, I'm still going to trust in you because you're a safe place to dwell. You keep your promises and you don't change. You're not moved by time the way I am. I, I look at my life and go, I'm, I'm, I'm in the third quarter. I'm in the fourth quarter. Lord, are you going to give me some overtime? Because I'd like to see you return. But even if you don't, before the, my game, my life ends, I still trust in you because you're a good dwelling place. Amen. You don't change. Amen. Amen. What's the context of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8? Peter says one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. The context in Second Peter is that the apostle is addressing those who are mocking Christians. For what? Why would they be mocking Christians? Because we're the ones who say he's coming back any moment now. Peter says mockers will come and in their mocking they will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was 
just as it has from the very beginning. Peter is saying, Christians, you are going to be mocked. And you're going to be mocked for this specific reason. You believe Christ is the Son of God who will return for you, his bride. And yet, as I began the sermon, over 2,000 years have passed. Where is he? Where is he at? And, and because he still has not yet come, some mockers might conclude, where's the promise? He's not a good dwelling place. He's not someone that you can put your hope in. See, he lied to you. It's been this long. Peter goes on to explain that we are counting. We are seeing life pass us by. And as it, does, as it does, unbelievers will conclude that God is unreliable because so much time has passed. In their estimation, God is not a good dwelling place. The, re, the writers of the Hebrews says this, many died in faith, not seeing or receiving the thing that they had hoped for. And yet they hoped and did not waver in their faith nonetheless. Why? Because God is a good dwelling place. Time runs out on man, but, but time does not run out on God. Because he's not bound by time. And yet, God decreed that there will be a time when Christ does return. Christ has promised and declared that he will return quickly. And it may seem like time is running out. Lord, we're on the verge of World War III. Where are you? But if you trust in him, he is a safe dwelling place. Because he's not moved by what... The east, the west, the north, he's not moved by what any of them are doing. He has ordered and decreed all things. He has promised that he would send the one to crush the head of the serpent. And from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Joseph, from Joseph to Moses, and on and on, they waited, dwelling in God, seeing God as a safe place to rest in, even though they did not see with their physical eye the fulfillment of the promise. But yet God did not fail to keep his word. The scriptures say, and at just the right time, when we were still powerless, God sent his son to die for the ungodly so that as a demonstration of his love, he might make just the unjust. God did this. God will keep his promise. Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. Christ said with an imperative, this is true. He will return, and not only return, but he will return quickly. You can trust in that. His word is a good, safe place to dwell. Peter Peter will argue God's promise, it's not known just because time has passed. Because once again, he's not bound by time. And in the meantime, Peter will say, and in the meantime, you better praise God that he's showing you mercy. He's being patient. Amen. God is allowing this time so that you will repent, so that you will not face the judgment. He is revealing his wonderful patience toward the sinner so that none of his, who, that none that are his will be lost. Christ proclaims his promise. He shall return. But when, O oh Lord, how long? Someone might even say, Jesus, do you even know? Second point. Does Christ know the hour? Does Christ know the hour? Is it hot in here? Is it hot? Could you turn the air on a little bit? Thank you, brother. Does Christ know the hour? Let me say this. I am just scratching the surface on this most deep issue. And I'm hoping to give a most basic explanation or 
basic presentation here. Okay. Revelation chapter 22, Christ says, I will return quickly three times. The Lord uh, proclaims his promise. Does he know when he will return? Does Jesus know when he will return? <clears throat> Let's just put this out there as well. Yes. Yes, he does. The question is based on the well-known verse concerning the return of Christ, Matthew 24, if, you, if you'd like to go there, because I'm going to be there for a little bit. Matthew 24, our Lord says, But about that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels or, or he of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. This has caused many to incorrectly conclude that there are things known, I'm going to say this hopefully appropriately, there are things known by the Father that are not known by the, some of this Son. Namely, the day and hour decreed by God when Christ will return. In Revelation 22, our Lord promised that with certainty that he will return. But are we to insert that while he is certain that he will return, he just doesn't have an idea of when exactly that will be? That makes sense? He knows he's coming, just don't know when I'm coming back. You, you never say that to your family who's far away. I'll be back one day, you just don't know when. You, you hope you'll be re you'll returning. You, don't, you can't pinpoint a date or time, right? This is interesting because in Matthew 24, the chapter in which our Lord seems to be ignorant about the day and hour of his return, he reveals a number of facts about his return or around his return. Let's consider some of the things, I'm going to keep using this word, revealed by Christ in that same chapter. Matthew 24, his disciples, uh, they are walking and, and they're marveling, if you can imagine. They're looking at the temple and they're marveling at the temple. And they say to, our, to the Lord, wow, look, at, look how beautiful this temple is, Lord. And our Lord responds to them in verse 2. And you can imagine our Lord kind of a being, being a killjoy at this moment. He goes, do you see all these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. They're marveling at the beauty of it. And Christ says, you see all this? It's going to get destroyed. It'll all fall one day. It would not be too many years later that the temple actually would be destroyed, torn down by the Romans. Christ revealed that this would take place. After this prophecy, they hadn't seen it yet, but they believed the Lord. So the disciples, they come to him and they want to know, when's this going to happen? And then they go, let's not stop there. Let's just go for it. They requested knowledge concerning the sign of his return and also the sign of the final age. When is it? When do we know it's the end? So the disciples go from, hey, look at this building. And the Lord said it's going to be turned, torn down. And because they believe him, they say, let's just go further. Let's, let's just ask him about everything. What, what's the sign of the end? And when are you coming back? Our Lord goes on to reveal that signs of the end, false Christ are going to arise. Christ is revealing that they will lead men astray, these false Christ. In the last days, Christ reveals that there will be wars and rumors of wars, but Christ knows that these wars are not the end, they're only the birthing pains. They're just, they're leading up to the end, yes? Christ reveals that the nations will rise against nations, and there will be famines and earthquakes. But again, not yet the time for his return. Just the birthing things. Christ then reveals that we Christians will also suffer tribulation because of him. That many will turn away not wanting to suffer. And as false Christ arise, 
Christ says lawlessness will also arise and that love for, for one's neighbor will, will grow cold. These, these are all signs of the end. But Christ encourages endurance and reveals, there's that word again, that this too is not the end, but that the end will not come until the gospel goes to all of the world as a means of drawing all of his people to himself. And then Christ reveals that when that happens, then the end will come. Then Christ reveals what will happen just before the end. That Antichrist will arise and great suffering again for those who are in Christ will increase. But just as it increases to its maximum capacity, if you will, Christ reveals, there's that word again, that heaven and earth will shake. Because he will appear. On clouds, let me say this, Christ will not be um, actually um, riding on clouds. Clouds are meant to represent, they are a symbol of glory and power. Christ is not actually going to be riding on clouds, uh, Super Mario Brothers style. He's not going to be riding on clouds. He's going to be, clouds are a symbol of power and glory. Saints, for one who does not know the day or the hour, he sure does seem to reveal a great deal about everything else. In fact, our Lord stops just short of actually revealing the day or the hour about his return. Uh, Pastor Isaiah made a good point in the morning uh, in our Sabbath school that there is a distinction between the knowledge of the eternal Son, the, the Word of God, and the knowledge between the incarnate Son. That there are things that the eternal Word, who is the Son of God, knows that the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, has not been given to know. Are we to apply that to this particular moment? Maybe. Maybe. How are we to understand this apparent statement of ignorance from Christ? I'm going to argue on this level. If you want to go the other level of knowledge of Son of God, knowledge of incarnate uh, Son, um, talk to Isaiah. I don't want to deal with that. He'll have a better answer than I will. Let's start with this, though. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with, or he was in the beginning with God. Christ is the eternal Word. I'm going that route, aren't I? Which is the wisdom of God. The Father does not have a separate mind or will of the eternal Son or Spirit. They are eternally one. There are not things that are known by the Father that are not known by the Son or the Spirit. They share all things, know all things. John 16, 15, <clears throat> Jesus says, All that belongs to the Father is mine. Or, all things that the Father has are mine. Now, we can make a distinction, ask Isaiah for that. Does that include the things that are the Father's, that Christ says that he knows about day and hour? Does that include the day and hour, knowledge of the day and hour in which he will return? I'm going to argue yes, that Christ does in fact know. I'm going to get to a point. All things that the Father knows, the Son knows. The incarnate is different. Talk to Isaiah. The Father knows the day and the hour. I do believe, therefore, the Son also knows the day and the hour. The Father knows all things. He knows those whom he has foreloved, and so does the Son. He knows all of the elect, and so does the Son. He knows all of them and has come to save them. There is nothing concealed between Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. Even the Spirit knows all things. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.11, the Spirit knows the thoughts of God and even um, knows the deep things of God. 
So how do we explain this, this statement of ignorance from Christ? I think Christ answers that question for us in John 12, 49. The Lord says, I did not come to speak on my own, but the Father himself, here it is, who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. All that Christ is revealing in 24, Matthew 24, has been given to him in his incarnate state by the Father to reveal. Does that make sense? Everything that the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, in the flesh is saying or revealing is everything that the Father has given the incarnate Son to reveal. But concerning the day and hour, it has not been given to Christ to reveal. Why? Well, because knowing the day and hour of the return of Christ is not relevant to his mission. His mission was to seek and to save the lost, not to reveal the day or the hour. It was given to Christ to, it was not given to Christ to reveal the day or the hour. It was given to Christ to reveal the Holy Trinity. To reveal the purpose to save. To defeat, it was given to Christ to defeat the works of Satan, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to raise the dead, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, but not to reveal the day or hour of his return and subsequent making all things new. After the resurrection, the Lord commanded his disciples to wait for the gift of the Spirit. You remember this? And they had a question for him. This is the risen and this, this is the risen Lord, not yet ascended, but this is the risen Lord. They have one question for him. Lord, is now the time for you to restore the kingdom of Israel? And our Lord has an interesting response in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. Here it is. It's not for you to know times or ages or ages which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Once again, Christ does not reveal the time. I don't believe it's not because he doesn't know it, but because he says, it's none of your business. Why? Once again, because it was not relevant to the mission. Salvation. That's the mission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's the mission. It's not to uh, do like some of these cuckoos do and say, you know, in the year 2000, get ready because that's when he's coming. Those, that's for the birds. Don't believe those people. Remember uh, when our Lord walked on the beach with Peter and he revealed to Peter how Peter was going to die. He says to Peter, Peter, you're going to go somewhere you don't want to go. But in doing so, you're going to honor and glorify me. That's the way you're going to go out. Do you, do you remember what Peter did? Peter's walking with the Lord. He probably sees John somewhere in the distance and he's looking at John and he goes, well, uh, Lord, what about him? Do you know what our Lord said to him in response? A very, a very sophisticated response. It, it is a deep, sophisticated response that our Lord gives to, to Peter. He goes to Peter. Hey, Peter, it's none of your business. Hey, Peter, mind your own business. If I want him to live until I return, it's none of your business. Our Lord doesn't say, jeez, Peter, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to him. I, I, I only know what's going to happen to you. No, he knows all things, even the manner in which men will expire. 
but it's not been given to him to reveal to men when he will return, the day or the hour. Paul, Peter, James, even John, in light of the wonderful things that have been revealed in Revelation, and all the things that have been revealed in the, in the epistles, not one of them is given the day or the hour. Imagine, saints, we've been in Revelation for two years. We will finish in, in December. Of all the wonderful things that we have seen in Revelation, here's the one thing that we have not seen, the day or the hour. John has seen marvelous things, glorious things, even things that are dread, dreadful. But the one thing he's not seen, and one thing that he's not been allowed to, to see, is the day or the hour. Why? I wonder why. Why isn't it, why isn't it any of our business? Sure, there are many reasons that are not known to me. But I think that at least one of them is so that we might live expectantly for his return. Always ready. You ever go somewhere with your family and and they say we're leaving at a certain time. And for many of us, we go, if I've got that much time, I'll get ready five minutes before it's time to go. I can get ready really fast. And some of you do some of you like that. And then some of you go, no, it takes me. I need to get up really early in the morning in order to get ready to go. Well, maybe it is because for some of us, we, we might not actually give ourselves wholly to the Lord, thinking that I've got time. It could be that the day and the hour of his sure return is concealed in order to cause us to depend upon him every day and to live each day as if it was our last. Investing in his kingdom and not in this temporal world because Christ will return quickly. Do you live every day like it's your last day? I don't. I don't live today like today could be my last. I live like, uh, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. I'm getting, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm older. I guess I'm 44, but I, I'm trying to get myself back together. Uh, I probably got another, hopefully, I don't want to say in front of my kids, I don't know how many years, but I've got some time. I don't live every day like it's my last. Some of you don't know this, I was in a car accident a few weeks ago. A good one. And I'm having recurring flashbacks of the moment of impact. I was I, I was hit straight, uh, straight on. Uh, r- running. A red light was ran, I'll say it that way. I don't think about it the way my mom or my wife or my kids do, that you could have been gone. And, and for me, I thought, ah, ah, I walked out, got underneath all of the uh, deployed things, shook it off, back's a little sore, I'm okay. Even after that, I don't think I, I, it could be my last today. Our brother Tony was just in the, car, just, uh, in the hospital for his heart conditions. Thank God he's getting better. But people like me and people like that, we should not take it for granted. I'm still here. I'll be okay. Because it's really easy to get past something and go, I'm cool. I'll be all right. Let's keep it pushing. Instead of, Lord, you have, well, here's, here's, here's what Moses is getting at. Maybe it might be because God is trying to teach us the wisdom of Moses, who in that prayer of come quickly, Lord, also prays this and teach us to number our days. Teach us to not look at our lives and assume that we have all the time in the world. Maybe that's what God is trying to teach us by not giving us a day and an hour. 
Maybe he's not revealed a day and an hour so that we might realize we are not immortal physically. That we should give ourselves wholly to God because this could all come to an end at any moment. And as I said last week, will we be happy or will we, will we be discouraged when he returns? Will we say, finally, the return on my investment has come or will we be disappointed? I didn't get to experience this, Lord. Are you going to have it in heaven so that I can still experience it? The joy of heaven is God. God. Are you investing in him? And maybe it's lastly this, that God is showing us that he is patient. Sister Doreen just shared that one of her sons came to faith recently. How many years have you been praying for him? Louis, yes? How many years have you been praying for Louis? How many years have you been praying for Louis? Do you know someone in your life that you're saying, gosh, Lord, please save them. Gosh, please, Lord, please save her. Lord, please save them. Do you know someone Well, maybe God is showing us by not an hour or a day that we should be fervent in prayer. Because God is patient. So that the Louis of the world will come to him. And we should thank God for some of us. Though we want him to come quickly, we also want those whom we love to come along with him when he comes, right? So, Lord, come quickly and save all of those who are yours before you come. Lord, I know you will. God's not dragging his feet, saints. <clears throat> He's displaying his mercy and his wisdom to all mankind. He will not return until this gospel has reached the four corners of the world. Therefore, our Lord says in closing, so be on alert. Matthew twenty-four forty-two, For you do not know the day which your Lord is coming. Be on alert. Be ready. Live every day like it's your last. Love the people in your home. Love the people in your church. When you are out in the world, love your neighbor. Love them. I, I did something that was not becoming of me. Well, that, that, I, I, that is becoming of a Christian, but it's not natural to me. I, and I, I'm not bragging on this. I'm saying that this is the work of God. I went to the car wash and there's cars that are lining up. I have not seen the car wash this, line, this full before. I'm getting ready to go in. And I see there's two cars. I don't know if they're going to go out or if they're going to go in. So I go. There was an older man who, who I guess was who I took his place, honked at me. And my natural mind is, what's up? What'd I do? You honking at me? Gets behind me fast. And not only does that, but he rolls down his window. Antonio, not Saint Antonio, Antonio's going, oh, my finger's just about to push the button down. And I'm looking at him in the mirror and I'm thinking, well, maybe I, I, yeah, I sold this spot. I can't get out of the way. Now I'm stuck here. Well, let's just keep going forward. Now go forward. It's not natural. Let me. It is not. It should be natural for me because I'm, I'm a new creation in Christ. But the old man wanted to say, oh, man, no, don't don't do that. old man. Don't do that. Right. All of that. Right. As I'm getting closer to pay, I've got I'm going to get the basic. Give me the ten dollar wash. But I got a 20 and it had to be God because the rest of the change. I said, would you please apply that to the man behind me? I stole the spot. And could you also say to him, I apologize for getting in front of him. Saints, that kind of stuff is what, what, what we want to be found doing when Christ returns. Like the man at the gas station a, a few months ago who rounded up what I gave him. 
and he wasn't even a believer and said, hey, man, you're close enough and rounded it up to me. When I went in, went in and thanked him, he said, no problem. Have a good day and not a believer. Don't let the unbeliever out good the believer. Let us do good to all mankind. That's not a glory to me. It's a glory to God. Because it took me waiting for it was finally my turn to go, you know what? Let's do the right thing. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at the time when the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Christ will return quickly. He's not moved by time, no matter how much time passes. God has decreed a time when he will return and it will be just at the right time. And Christ knows the time. He will return and make all things new. And praise God, I pray that we will be a part of that wonderful new creation. Let's pray.